Hello listeners, I wanted to tell you about something that I use and was part of its inception, Joyful.Gifts. Joyful.Gifts is a service that makes giving gifts very easy and joyful. You tell us who you want to give gifts to, set a budget, and then we select buy and ship the gift automatically to every occasion while you have peace of mind. Best of all, you actually save money since the software continuously mines the web for the best prices for you. If you want to give it a try, it's at joyful.gifts. No www, no.com. Just type joyful.gifts in your browser and you're set to go. Thank you. Hello. And welcome to the History of the Cards, episode 36, Prelude to Justinian. Last time, we ended around the time of Justin's elevation and the exile of Severus to Alexandria. When he arrived, he went to the Enaton Monastery in the suburbs of Alexandria, with several of his fellow Miaphysite bishops. Most important for us is the Bishop Julian, that I mentioned last week. Ender Severus basically resumed his duties as the Patriarch of Syria via letters to two leading monks. Despite Justin's best efforts in the exile of more than 50 Syrian bishops to Egypt, the monks in Syria and a smaller group in Palestine still held to their resistance to Chalcedon and looked to Severus to guide them. The biggest problem for those monks and Severus were the ordaining of new clergy when the old Miaphysite clergy dies, as basically no Miaphysite bishops were left outside of Egypt, there was no one left to ordain new clergy for the Miaphysites in the empire. And anyway, most of the Miaphysite leadership was extremely hesitant to ordain new clergy to shepherd exclusively to the Miaphysites, as this would quickly lead to two different churches in the empire with two different hierarchies, something that no one wanted at this point. We will talk more about this problem next week. But for this week, the problem that was facing the Miaphysites in Egypt was that the Bishop Julian and Severus had a serious falling out, and the anti-Chalcedon movement was basically split. The falling out probably had to do with the two main personalities more than anything else. According to one source, a monk asked in the presence of the two men, what is the composition of Christ's flesh? And their answer, Severus emphasized the humanity of Christ and the mortal nature of the flesh, while Julian asserted that the body of Christ was, quote, incorruptible, even before resurrection. To simplify the argument, Severus was arguing for a flesh of Christ like our own, subject to suffering and all human conditions, i.e., fully man and fully God, while Julian took the one nature Christology to a step further and asserted that Christ's flesh 
cheered in the divine qualities, and thus was not subject to suffering and of a different composition than our own. The obscure theological topic quickly turned into written warfare between the two men. Severus was accused of being a closet Nestorian and a secret supporter of Chalcedon, while Julian got essentially a whole book written about him by Severus, refuting his, quote, fantasy. Without the guiding hand of Pope Timothy III, the whole Miaphysite movement would have entered into full civil war right there. In the primary sources of this period, who tend to see compromise as weakness, Bob Timothy is described as one who, quote, sometimes agreeing with one, but at other time agreeing with the other. This may be just a biased description of Timothy's effort to reconcile the two Mensa, especially as we know from his surviving homilies that he came very clearly to the side of Severus as the conflict grew bigger and it seemed that he would not be able to reconcile the two men. Despite his best efforts to keep everyone in the same camp, the Egyptian monks started taking sides between Severus and Julian. The more extreme elements sided with Julian, and the moderate voices with Severus. So really, if we look at the post-Chalcedon theological controversies from a big picture as a one continuum, we can see how the theological issues became more and more obscure and how both sides were continuously being pulled to take a more extreme position. From the Miaphysite side, the moderate voices of Peter Mongols and his successors were drowned by Severus and Philoxenus, who in turn were drowned by the voices of Julian and his followers. In the Chalcedonian side, the moderate voices of Achaeus and his successors were drowned by the voices of the Pope in Rome whose voice will be drowned by a group called the Schizian monks with their own version of obscure Christology. I am not going to spend too much time on the Schizian monks, since I don't want to stray too far away from the Copts. But just know that they will travel back and forth between Rome and Constantinople, and in the process, influence Justinian's theological thought and clash with the Pope. Also, if you are wondering, Philoxenus was not one of the bishops that made it to Alexandria. He ended up in Gangra, locked up in an airless room, exposed to smoke and toxins from a large kitchen below him. His health suffered pretty quickly, and he died within a couple of years of Justin's elevation. Anyway, this trend of polarization will finally culminate with the formal separation into multiple churches shortly in the reign of Justinian, and with the principle of one church for the one empire crumbling, once Pope Timothy III dies, the dormant civil war inside the Miaphysite camp will kick into full gear between the followers of Julian and the followers of Severus. But like I said, 
we still have a little bit until we get there. For now, Bob Timothy III was making himself irreplaceable by taking a very active role in the geopolitics of the empire and its neighbors. You see, under Justin, relationship between the empire and its eternal enemy, Persia, was deteriorating fast. The issue at hand was the client kingdom and tribes that were within the circle of influence of Persia. But due to the spirit of Christianity, they were switching sides to Constantinople. This played out in two locations. The first was around modern-day Georgia, and the second was in the Arabian Peninsula. In the latter, Christianity have penetrated all the way down to modern-day Yemen, which was a very important strategic and trading link between the empire and its trading partners in India and China. In there, there was a large Jewish community, the pagan Arab tribes, and a fast-growing Christian community. Was war breaking out between Persia and the empire over the client kingdoms over in Georgia, the Arab tribes naturally started to take sides in the conflict and actively raid the frontier areas. The Christian tribes, most influential of which are the Ghassanids, raided Persia on behalf of the empire, and the Begin Lachmids raided the empire on behalf of Persia. This was not a good or a regular war where armies faced each other. Rather, it was the kind of war where armies avoid direct conflict and used proxies to inflict harm on civilians instead. At some point, the Lachmids captured and massacred about 300 nuns and took several Byzantine officials hostage. In the same time, a Jewish leader in Yemen did exactly the same thing. He captured and massacred a large community of Christians in Najran, an oasis on the borders of modern-day Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Now, the massacre of Najran was partly for commercial reasons to keep the Red Sea trade in Persian-friendly hands, partly as a religious conflict, and partly as a local struggle for the Jewish leader to establish a personal kingdom. Whatever the case, the word have reached Justin, who had sent a delegation there to negotiate for the captured officials. Also, refugees from the massacre ended up in Ethiopia, presenting their blight to the king of Ethiopia. And that's when Pope Timothy III comes into the picture. Basically, the Ethiopian king was happy to go to Yemen and exact revenge on the Jewish community. In that process, he will kill the newly established Jewish kingdom and keep the Red Sea ports in Byzantine-friendly hands. But while he had the men, he lacked the ships. As the geographical distance between Constantinople and Ethiopia was prohibitive to any active coordination 
Justin could not really help in any practical ways. Not to mention, the Ethiopians were under the Coptic Church, and thus committed to the Miaphysite cause, which Justin was trying to kill at the moment. So this could have been a problem. But then, Pope Timothy III stepped up and served as the link between Constantinople and Ethiopia, and he coordinated the campaign with the Ethiopian king. Through his influence in Egypt, he promised the Ethiopian kings both commercial ships and fighting men for his expedition. Part of the commercial trading fleet of the Red Sea was then routed to Ethiopia, where the ships were used as transport vessels. It does not look like the Pope was able to supply any men, but then again, they weren't really needed. The Ethiopian army landed in Yemen and completely crushed the newly established Jewish kingdom, killing its king in the process. A client king friendly to the Byzantines was then installed, and the remnant of the Jewish community immigrated deeper in the Arabian Peninsula. The client kingdom did not last for long, so, and the area kept slipping back and forth between regional warlords for a while. Eventually, by 570 AD, a Persian-backed warlord took control of the area. But he too did not last for long, as this was the year presumably the Prophet Muhammad was born in, and that's a whole different chapter that eventually we will get to. For now, it is quite telling that the last Roman coins that made it to India were under Justin's reign. So it seems like the commercial activity that this region facilitated never recovered, either due to the loss of life or the loss of knowledge for the immigration of the Jewish community. At any rate, Pope Timothy's coordination of the effort won him some very high breezes, which really made Egypt a safe haven from the Miaphysites all over the empire who were under intense pressure from the imperial government, especially in Syria. You see, when Justin was elevated to the office of emperor, Vitalian from last week's episode was still around in Thrace, and still he had a core of supporters who pushed hard for an uncompromising stand with the Miaphysites. So, partly to deal with the threat of Vitalian, and partly to improve relations with the West, Justin went on a brutal purge of the Miaphysite monks in Syria. And unlike the bishops, most of the monks could not secure passage to Alexandria, and many of them were pushed into the desert where they died. The Syrian church has many martyrs from this period, and Justin is often portrayed as an evil monster in many of those accounts. But really, the strategy to deal with Vitalian sort of forced his hands into that sort of action. He did not wish to look less of an orthodox than a rival. So, naturally, he went above and beyond in his persecution of the Miaphysites. 
In the meantime, he invited Vitalian to the capital with a promise of a high office. Vitalian naturally hesitated, but an oath administered publicly by Justin and his nephew slash adopted son, Justinian, for his safety, convinced him of their sincerity, and he moved to Constantinople. And there, he became immediately popular, and as a result, Justin could not afford to take more of a pragmatic stand. Three years into his stay, Vitalian was chosen as a council, and essentially his popularity reached an all-time high, which threatened Justinian's position as the heir to the throne. So, during a week of public games, where the blues and the greens were busy drinking and fighting each other, Vitalian was lured into a trap and assassinated by the orders of Justinian. The mob, basically the blues and the greens at this point, were too busy and then too hungover to react to Vitalian's death, and Justinian was able to get away with it. Now, I know that I mentioned the circus factions in an earlier episode, so hopefully you're not entirely confused when I say blues and greens. But just to make it clear, in the reign of Justin, the organization really took on a whole new level. And in essence, they were almost like a modern political party, where they can call on their supporters to violently express their opinion and specific issues. Under Justinian, they will hit their beak, and basically express their opinion about the emperor himself in the Nika revolts. But for now, they were a volatile political element that served as a trick to the emperor. Anyway, once Vitalian died, the persecution of the Miaphysites in Syria basically ended, as at this point it caused more harm than good. Of course, Miaphysite bishops were still not allowed to return to their homes, and an edict went out that essentially purged the army of all Miaphysites. But other than that, for the most part, Miaphysites in Syria were allowed to be. A particularly cruel Antiochian bishop who replaced Severus was removed for a milder but much more incompetent one. So in those years, Severus's competition was severely lacking, and he still held sway in Syria despite his exile. By 526 AD, the situation in Syria significantly changed when a really bad earthquake hit Antioch in the period immediately after Easter. The earthquake essentially destroyed the city, and if we are to believe the primary sources, up to 300,000 people died, including the incompetent Chalcedonian patriarch. Now, while many Miaphysites saw the earthquake as God's punishment for the persecution that they just came out of, it actually weakened the Miaphysite position in Syria, 
Essentially, many of the dead were miaphysites, and the subsequent depopulation of Antioch gave the imperial government a chance to reshape the city, its churches, and to a lesser extent, its inhabitants. Not to mention, the new patriarch, replacing the one who died in the earthquake, was an imperial officer responsible for the East, a highly energetic and intelligent man named Ephraim. He finally gave Severus some competition for the hearts and soul of Syrians, and managed to put the Miaphysites in Syria under pressure. In the same year, over in Constantinople, a curious visitor was stopping by in the city. The religious policy of Justin, or more accurately, Justinian, had some unintended consequences over in Italy. As Justin and Justinian were both strict Chalcedonians, waves of discriminations not only hit the Miaphysites, but also the few Aryans who were left in the empire, Jews, Nestorians, and pretty much anyone who was not quote-unquote orthodox. Over in Italy, there was an Aryan political regime and a Chalcedonian papacy. So in Syria, persecuting the Aryans in the empire could be reciprocated by persecuting the Orthodox in Italy. Fortunately, Theodoric, the current ruler of the Aryan kingdom in Italy, did not really want to go this route. So, he decided to summon the Pope to Ravenna and send him on an embassy to Constantinople to essentially ask the imperial government to tolerate the Aryans who were still in the empire. So for the first time, as far as I can tell, the Pope traveled from Italy all the way to Constantinople. When he arrived, he was treated with all the honors and celebration that you can possibly imagine. Justin even allowed the Pope to recrown him in a new coronation ceremony. The Pope then delivered his message and asked Justin and Justinian to tolerate the Aryans in the empire, which they assured him that they will do. And a couple of months later, a heresy edict was issued that specifically excluded the Aryans. Now, this was really an extraordinary event. I mean, here we have the Babisi asking for more extreme measures in the Miaphysites, and only a couple of years after that, asking for a more tolerant attitude toward the Aryans, the enemy of orthodoxy for the last 300 years. Which just really tells you how little did the actual theological differences matter. At any case, for the Pope efforts and his return to Ravenna, he was imprisoned by Sudoric and died a few days later. You see, based on an extremely warm welcome, Sudoric quickly figured out that the imperial government was setting the groundwork for an invasion of Italy. And when it comes to that, the Pope would likely be the first person 
to take the side of the Byzantines. Theodoric was right in his fears, especially as the new king of the Vandals in North Africa was trying to switch over from the Aryan side to the Orthodox, and a new alliance between Vandals and Byzantines were forming. This really sets us up for the upcoming very busy and very long reign of Justinian and the formation of a permanent Miaphysite church hierarchy once Pope Timothy III dies. The year after the Pope visited Constantinople, Justin got sick, and it was becoming clear that his days were numbered. His nephew and adopted son Justinian was elevated as a co-emperor for a smooth transition once Justin dies. A couple of months later, Justin did die, and Justinian became the sole emperor of the empire on August 1st, 527 AD. Which sounds like a good time to finally formally introduce him and his wife, Theodora. Justinian was just like Justin, a native of the European side of the Eastern Empire. He benefited greatly from his uncle rising star, and his uncle provided him with a solid education in the capital. He took the opportunity that fate has given him, and essentially never looked back. Even during his uncle's reign, he held wide sway over the government, with some arguing that he basically ruled on his own right through his aging uncle. His education, as you would expect, included theology, and Justinian could probably rightly claim that he was a theologian in his own right. His reign, which would last close to 40 years, would essentially transform the empire, and whether the transformation was for the better or the worse, is highly contentious, even to this day. Rising with him was his wife, and essentially co-ruler, the brilliant Theodora. Theodora was truly an exceptional individual, and without her influence, the modern Miaphysite church would probably be very different, if it existed at all. Rising from even a lower social class than Justin or Justinian, she became very influential, and for long stretches of Justinian's reign, she personally took charge of the religious policy of the empire. Theodora was born from two barons who were performers in the circus, which for the Romans was the lowest of the low. Her situation then gotten worse when her father died when she was four, essentially leaving the family very vulnerable. By 16, she was an actress, which as I mentioned before, for the Romans was basically the equivalent of being a prostitute, and Theodora was perceived as such, and if she wasn't one, then at the very least she was involved in some very sleazy establishment in the capital.
eventually she met an obscure government official and they developed a relationship where she went with him on his travels. Those travels led her to Alexandria, where she was separated from the official and crossed basses with Pope Timothy III. In her stay in Alexandria, she was converted to Miaphysite Christianity, became religious, and gave up her formal lifestyle. At some point later, she left Alexandria and settled back in the capital as a wool spinner near the palace where she met Justinian. They eventually got married and her influence and intelligence was immediately felt in the palace. I mean, one of the first things she literally did was to save Justinian's throne and probably his life in the Nika revolts. But we will get there next week, where we will jump into the reign of Justinian and see all the back and forth that led to the formation of a completely independent Miaphysite church. Thank you for listening. Farewell and until next week.